What, what a tremendous delight to be here and see so many old friends, see the college thriving. It's great to be at Mass today and hear that splendid charge in the homily to make our learning serve the life of charity. It's just really, that's what we're all about and all here for. So what a joy for me. Uh, before I, I give a little talk here on Francis de Sales, I, I would like to make an advertisement for a couple of good institutions in Denver, Colorado. There's some information about them right behind Mrs. O'Donnell on the table with a white tablecloth in the back of the room. There's a brochure about Christ in the City missionaries. What Christ in the City is is a, is a chance for people your age, the students age, uh, recent graduates, or you can take a year off from undergraduate, to spend a year, as my son put it recently, hanging out with hobos. Uh, my son's 15, so that, that appealed to him. Uh, the Christ, Christ and City Missionaries uh, do street evangelization work with the homeless in Denver, and um, you wouldn't know it unless you've been there, but um, Denver's one of the capitals for homeless in the United States. The weather's really nice, and there's a good support network, and so there's something like 10,000 homeless people in Denver. Uh, yeah, it's, it's beyond belief. Uh, so. They have an incredible ministry, and it's a great thing to spend a spring break. Some of you were just there at Christ in the City with Dr. Shannon here. Um, but uh, you can go there for a, for a spring break or for time in the summer or for a whole year. So there's information about Christ in the City in the back. And then also information about the Augusta Institute, where, where I teach. We give a master's degree uh, in theology and also in leadership for the new evangelization. And what I particularly like to mention is that we do have a full scholarship program. It's a competition called the, uh, the John Paul II uh, competition. Uh, the application deadline is, is fast approaching, but it's a chance to win um, a spot for a master's degree free of charge. Uh, so have a look at the Augustine Institute materials if a master's degree in theology appeals to you. And I hope it does. We'd love to have some Christendom students with us. So my talk is entitled Charity's Burning Lamp, St. Francis de Sales and the Renewal of the Catholic Mind. O God, O God, how weary, stale, flat, and unprofitable seem to me all the uses of this world. Fie on it, O fie! Tis an unweeded garden that grows to seed. Things rank and gross in nature possess it. This cry of confusion and despair from Shakespeare's Prince Hamlet captures the mood of an entire era. In Europe, the turn of the 17th century was a time of deep and widespread anxiety. The transformations wrought by the new cultural forms of the Renaissance and the new theological ideas and ways of Christian life brought by the Protestant Reformation were ground-shaking and seemingly permanent. Of the same generation as Hamlet, but of a very different cast of mind, was the saint whose response to these challenges was arguably the most insightful and effective, Francis de Sales. To a Christendom wearied by struggle and bewildered by rapid change, he brought the calm, steady determination of the gospel. The challenges that we face today 
are much like those he confronted. The burning lamp of his charity can be a beacon to guide us through the labyrinth of secularist society and the labors of the new evangelization. In an attempt to learn from his example and teaching, we will first take stock of the challenges his generation faced, then look at his apostolic life and labors, and finally, reflect upon those aspects of his teaching that seem most likely to profit us today. Shakespeare's Hamlet, black clad with furrowed brow, is a fitting image of his age, particularly in his utterance, which was passionate, troubled, and dark. The time is out of joint, he said. This most excellent canopy, the air, he lamented, appears no other thing to me than a foul and pestilent congregation of vapors. And perhaps most tellingly, he cried, this realm dismantled was of Jove himself. The play's many images of religious dislocation and protests against the profanation of the sacred from the ghost's admonition that he had died without the sacraments, unhouseled, disappointed, unannealed, to the maimed rites of Ophelia's funeral, have led multiple critics to see in Hamlet the work of a Catholic poet and an angry one at that. However the Catholics, uh, sorry, the playwright's Catholic identity may have stood at the end of Elizabeth I's reign, he certainly shared the experience of many of his contemporaries. His roots lay in Catholic soil, but overhead were storm clouds that shut out the Catholic sun. In taking stock of the religious and cultural troubles of Western Europe at the end of the 16th century, it is important to recall that it was a century of religious warfare. From the battlefield death of the Swiss reformer Ulrich Zwingli in 1531, to the execution of Guy Fawkes in 1606. The losses of life due to religious conflict were many, and they spread throughout Europe. The battle lines of these struggles were often deeply confusing. There were Lutherans in the armies of the Catholic emperor that rioted and sacked Rome in 1527. And an Islamic fleet spent the winter of 1543-4 in the French port city of Toulon as the guest of a cynical king who had contracted an alliance with the Turk. Later in the century, the Catholics of France were deeply divided among themselves when it became apparent that the fastest way to end their wars of religion was to recognize the claim to the throne of a Calvinist prince who then converted and declared with his proverbial charm that Paris was worth the mess. It's wonderful to be in a place where people have heard these stories before. It's great. To this day, the debates of historians continue. Were the wars of the 16th century essentially religious, or should they be regarded as the product of incipient, incipient nationalism and state building? The interminability of these debates mirrors the unease and confusion of the age itself. Evidence of increasing contempt for and even mockery of sacred things mounts as the 16th century draws to a close. From the University of Cambridge in 1576, one student complained that while Aristotle was 
much named but little read, in his place Machiavelli was thought a great man. Everyone was inquisitive after news, new books, new fashions, new laws, while the gospel was taught, not learned, and charity was key cold. In Germany, a poet wrote in 1588, these are the last and worst times which have come upon the world, times in which all faith has decayed, love has grown cold, and all manner of insolence, scandal, vice, and contempt of the divine word have increased. In France, when an advisor to King Henry IV converted to the Catholic faith in 1597, he was ridiculed throughout Paris and made the subject of a satirical sketch by a prominent man of letters. Skepticism about religious profession was threatening to become the new norm. And wherever religious identity was undermined, new secular imagery came in to fill a public space in which confessional symbols had become divisive. The story of the West Cheap Cross in London is an instance of the trend. This late medieval stone crucifix group, so typical of the decoration of crossroads throughout Europe, had been damaged by iconoclasts and badly needed repair. But the year 1600 was not the time for the restoration of Catholic art in England. Christ's suffering on the cross was replaced by a pyramid bearing a semi-nude statue of the pagan goddess Diana. We can only guess, writes one historian of the period, of the impact on their sense of the sacred when English men and women saw their priest feed his swine from a trough which had once been the parish holy water stout. And while that sort of mental violence was limited to those parts of Europe where Protestant iconoclasm was committed, stories had a way of spreading. Here is a report from Holland in 1566. I went into the church with 10,000 others. It looked like hell. There were fallen images, costly works beaten down, the organ and all destroyed. They have not left a place to sit on in the church. This testimony happens to have been written by an Englishman, but it was sent from one of Europe's great marketplaces where Germans, French, Scandinavians, Italians, and Spaniards all congregated. It was Europe as a whole that suffered in spirit from the betrayal, vengeance, and lawlessness that characterized the century's religious conflict. Standing as the great commentator upon this troubled century was Michel de Montaigne. A nobleman, jurist, and private scholar from the south of France, Montaigne, who stays here 1533 to 1592, is known as the author of three volumes of essays published in their final form in 1588. It was one of the most widely read texts of the next 100 years and sufficiently troubling in its influence to have been placed upon the Roman index of forbidden books towards the century's end. It was in the 1670s. Montaigne's reaction to the strife of warring Christians and the uncertainties brought on by their inconclusive theological debates was to seek to frame a way of thinking that would not rely upon revelation and to chart a course for living that would not explicitly seek help in the sacraments of the church. A scoffer he was not. He raised an adopted niece with sufficient piety that she ended a Catholic nun who is now a canonized saint. 
and he died while trying to lift himself from his bed at the elevation of the host while Holy Mass was being offered in his room. His vast influence, however, came through his writings. And in them, as his biographer put it, Montaigne seems to ignore Christianity. Or again, as one of his most careful students has said, Montaigne's religious world is a world of grace, but reason has to manage without it in the essays. Montaigne's essays is likely to have been in the back of Francis de Sales' mind when he wrote his introduction to The Devout Life, which stands toward that earlier text, a work which de Sales knew from his youth, as a response and even something of a refutation. As a whole, the essays may be characterized as an attempt to seek peace of mind without seeking God. Montaigne found man to be an object miraculously vain, various, and wavering, but this diagnosis did not lead him to propose steps for moral regeneration. Instead, he counseled acquiescence in the human condition. What this meant was that we should come to terms with our frailty and manage it. I quote, all the labor of reason must be to make us live well and at our ease. All the opinions in the world reach the same point, that pleasure is our target. He knew that this conclusion put him at variance with the example of the saints. And he admitted that the fasts, vigils, and prayerful solitude of those whose objective is God resulted in their carnal appetites being lulled asleep, as he put it. Yet he considered heroic self-denial to be a path for the chosen few, not for the, quote, scrapings of the pot that we are. His own commonplace soul, as he called it, required sustenance with the pleasures of the body, and this was a concession that to him implied a positive program of enjoyment. We must cling tooth and claw, he said, to the use of the pleasures of this life which the advancing years one after another rip from our grasp. To maintain the task of life was not for reason to conquer the unruly passions through a determined struggle, but instead for it to win, quote, order and tranquility for the conduct of our life by brokering a truce between virtue and the passions. It is an accomplishment, he said, absolute and as it were godlike to know how to enjoy our being as we ought. The most beautiful lives to my liking are those which conform to the common measure, human and ordinate, without miracles and without rapture. There is a certain sorrowfulness to Montaigne's tone, just as there is to his doctrine. It was the voice of one who had been unsettled by the new things of the 16th century. Shakespeare had his Prince Hamlet returned to Denmark from studies in Luther's Wittenberg. But as Father Peter Millward has argued, Hamlet, quote, might equally well have come from Bordeaux, that is, from Montaigne's study. To Hamlet and to many in that troubled age, the Christian faith had been rendered problematic. While still generally held to be true, it had become an equivocal guide to life. And some thought that the best way forward was to adopt Montaigne's stratagem of making a distinction between the man and the Christian and a separation between religion and life. To us, looking back from our secular age, Montaigne's stance appears as a first step 
toward the rejection of the Christian faith altogether. The young Francis de Sales seems to have had a similar judgment of it. He was very conscious both of man's infirmity and of God's majesty, and he was a man of deep, almost instinctual balance and good sense. To him, the compartmentalization of life that Montaigne displayed and advocated was unattractive and unimaginable. For de Sales, there was but one end to be sought in life, the love of God. Benedict XVI noted that the life of St. Francis de Sales was relatively short, but lived with the greatest intensity. He was born in 1567, the eldest son of a provincial nobleman who lived in the foothills of the Alps, west of Lyon in what is today a part of France, but was then located in the Grand Duchy of Savoy. A pious and dutiful child, he was intended to follow his father's footsteps and to become a senator of the duchy and the pillar of his extended family. From his youth, however, he wanted to be a priest. At age 11, he was sent to Paris and studied for a decade in the city that was then as now regarded as the great finishing school of Europe. But his lessons in swordplay and dance, liberal arts and gentlemanly manners, he held in lower esteem than those in divine science. He used his scant free time to attend theological lectures, like you all here today. <laughs> and to pore over the theology class notes taken by his tutor and mentor. I don't recommend that. That's not a good idea. Uh, who was himself already studying for holy orders. So serious were the young Francis's reflections that they took him to the very brink of a crisis of faith. In his 20th year, face to face with the doctrine of predestination, he was tempted to despair about his ultimate fate. A timely trip to a local church and a heartfelt memorare set in front of a statue of Our Lady changed his life and permanently. His mature doctrine would include a pronounced trust in God's mercy in Jesus Christ. Yet the episode did not quench his desire to study theology. Shortly afterwards, he composed a prayer dedicating himself to learn and to teach the saving doctrine of the gospel. Okay, this is this is Francis de Sales at your age. This is a prayer, a line from a prayer he wrote. Prostrate at the feet of Saints Augustine and Thomas, I am ready to ignore everything in order to know him who is the wisdom of the Father, Christ crucified. That's how, that's how saints are made. From Paris... The young de Sales went to Padua to study law at his father's behest, completing a dual degree in canon and civil law in 1591. That winter, he returned to the family home, outwardly ready to take up a career as lawyer and judge, but inwardly determined to pursue Christ in the priesthood. His father obtained for him a suitable legal post and even found him a bride. But Francis was determined in his purpose and he eventually persuaded his father that he must be allowed to answer God's call. The balance was tipped when Francis was asked to take the office of provost of the cathedral chapter, a post significant enough to assure his father that his son's talent and station would not be thrown away by the church. Francis de Sales was a priest for only eight years before his elevation to the episcopacy, but they were years of extraordinary zeal and achievement. 
Later in life, he testified that at his first Holy Mass in December of 1593, quote, God took possession of my soul in an inexplicable manner. Within a few days, he made his first speech as head of the cathedral chapter, laying down a program for intense missionary activity. This is what he said to the assembled priests of, of his diocese. We must take back Geneva. Okay, so it's a little bit like saying, we must take back Manhattan or Berkeley. Okay, and this is just, what are you talking about? Okay. Once an important city of the Grand Duchy of Savoy, Geneva had won its independence both from the Grand Duke and from her bishop in the 1530s with the help of Protestants from German-speaking Switzerland. The reformer John Calvin had ruled there for all practical purposes from 1555 through his death in 1564. I know you all know this. It's very good. And the name Geneva then became synonymous with opposition to the Catholic faith. The southern shore of Lake Geneva, a hillside region known as the Chablais, was conquered by the Genevans and saw its Catholic faith forcibly removed with all the iconoclasm typical of Swiss Protestantism. All the altars gone, all the stained glass statues gone, all of it. In 1594, however, the Grand Duke won the Chablais back, and he wanted to see the Catholic faith restored there. A missionary was needed with more than ordinary skill and resolve. Francis volunteered for the work. The story of the mission to the Chablais belongs in the annals of heroic Christian preaching alongside the work of Francis Xavier, pray for us, and St. Isaac Job. The young Francis de Sales, not quite 30 years of age, headed into hostile territory accompanied only by his cousin, also a priest. And for the first year of their mission, these two men had to make their way home each evening to the castle of a friendly nobleman, braving not only suspicious Protestants, but also ice and snow and occasionally wolves. Of these dangers, he subsequently commented, my life is a very small thing when there is question of the glory of God and the good of the church. When the two arrived in the region in September 1594, there were only a handful of Catholics left. Within four years, almost the entire region had converted. Thousands of souls had been won back to the faith. Francis's methods were simple, but also innovative. In addition to his presence, his conversation, and his priestly offer of the sacraments. He also wrote theological tracts defending the Catholic doctrine of the church and papal primacy and such Catholic practices as making the sign of the cross. At one point, he even braved the city of Geneva itself to have a theological dialogue with the leader of the Protestants, Theodore Beza. And as the mission gathered steam, other, other priests joined him, and they were at last able to stage public devotions Holy Mass in churches, and eventually a tremendous 40 hours devotion in the city of Tonon in 1598, an event that celebrated the effective completion of the region's spiritual conquest. The second four years of his priesthood were quiet by comparison to the, these first four. He did visit both Rome and Paris, and so admired was his preaching and his conversation that King Henry IV tried to convince him to serve as his bishop in Paris a post that would have almost certainly guaranteed additional preferment in the form of a cardinal's hat, and also would have given Francis the widest possible field upon which to exercise his God-given talents. And, and he had five of them. So. Yet he refused, preferring the humble provincial life of a bishop of Geneva ruling in exile. 
Francis de Sales' episcopacy is a story of the hidden life of wisdom and grace. If any of his deeds are known, it would be his role as the advisor to the founder of the Order of the Visitation, St. Jane de Chantal. The contrast between his first 16 years as bishop with the preceding eight years of his priesthood is almost complete. There were few journeys outside of his region, no great diplomatic works, and indeed little to mention beyond the daily, seasonal, and annual rounds of duty. But Francis de Sales did not pine after opportunities he had lost. Rather, he warmly embraced the ordinary tasks set in front of him, visiting the parishes of his diocese and attending to their affairs and to the needs of the poor, while maintaining a simple life with hardly any of the customary trappings of luxury or rank. He even wrote his own letters by hand, which was extraordinary at the time for, for a man of his station as many as 20 in a single day. From that patient and generous work, God brought forth extraordinary fruit. For Francis de Sales was unstinting in his gift of friendship, and he was a spendthrift with his time when it came to the priestly task of consoling and directing souls. To one of his regular correspondents, he sent a collection of spiritual exercises. When she showed it to another priest, the result was a bold request that de Sales publish it for the good of souls. Thus came to the light of day one of the most widely read spiritual books of all time, the introduction to the devout life. The work was first printed in December 1608, when it, that's, and that's how we ought to think about the introduction to the devout life. Okay. Um, this is, uh, that's the, my problem, right there. Uh, the, the work was printed when the author was 41 years old. Reading that text today, one can only wonder at that fact. The wisdom and the learning contained in the volume are such as would make an aged monk green with envy. We will now consider its teaching as a response to the world weariness of the essayist Montaigne and to the anxiety of the age of the Reformation. Montaigne's keen awareness of, the, of folly and vice left him without much hope that the love of God could transform the soul. His essays contained only six references to Christ. It's in a big, thick book. And this scarcity, which almost constitutes an omission, is a suggestive corollary to his distaste for spiritual perfection. Montaigne's friends and companions in his search for the good life were not the Holy Family and the saints, but instead the ancient pagan sages. His constant appeal was not to grace, but to nature. What sums up the complexion of his mind is the passion and vice known as achadia, or sloth. We commonly think of sloth as akin to laziness, and indeed it is. A disinclination not for any activity whatever, but for activity according to the virtues. Aquinas considered the root of sloth to be a sorrow or sadness in the face of the difficulty of achieving spiritual goods. When this sorrow is embraced and consented to, it becomes a vice. And it represents, as Aquinas explained, the flesh utterly prevailing over the spirit. OK? 
okay, otherwise known as Xbox. <laughs> Sloth. Sloth is the condition of soul of the rich young man from St. Matthew's Gospel who went away sorrowful, having turned his back on Jesus' invitation to come follow me because he had great possessions. That episode alerts us to the fact that sloth can be a precursor to outright disbelief. Viewed from the perspective of the Gospel, Montaigne's essays were an apology for sloth, and a telling symptom of the spiritual malaise that threatened the entire age. To this dangerous doctrine and trend, a determined response was necessary, and such was the introduction to the devout life, and such also was the personal ministry of St. Francis de Sales. What is perhaps most remarkable about the message of Francis de Sales is the way in which it is both compellingly clear and eminently practical. It is a constitutive feature of human life that we struggle to unite the clarity of principle and the effectiveness of experience. Few are able to affect the marriage. Francis de Sales did. He had both an extraordinary focus on the end, the love of God, and an uncanny ability to mark out the steps on the path leading to that end. His spiritual counsel was approachable and supple. It may not be much easier to be good for having been taught by him. The essential work must still be done by our own wills. But it is easier to know how to be good. The particular teaching of DeSales that stands in opposition to the doctrine and the habitual cast of mind of Montaigne is his recommendation that we cultivate the virtue of patience that little daughter of charity, which in the words of Aquinas, safeguards the mind from being overcome by sorrow. Perhaps the most surprising passage of the introduction to the devout life is de Sales's instruction on the choice of virtues. The book as a whole is about loving God. And to love God fittingly and well, we must have all of the virtues, at least to some degree. For without them, we will be endlessly encountering obstacles to the love of God, or worse yet, be attached to something that is contrary to it. As de Sales himself teaches, charity never enters a heart without lodging both itself and its train of all the other virtues. Yet to have the firm dispositions that are the virtues and to put each of them into daily practice are two different things. Some virtues, particularly the greater ones, tend to stay in the background of our character until they are called upon for their special work. For, as DeSales explained, it is not often that we have the chance to practice fortitude, magnanimity, and great generosity whereas meekness, temperance, integrity, and humility must mark all our actions in life. At stake is not merely circumstance, but also our own choice, and reasoned choice at that. In practicing the virtues, he counseled, we should prefer the one most conformable to our duties rather than one more agreeable to our tastes. 
The third of the five parts of the introduction to the devout life, and by far the largest part, is devoted to this choice that we should make in our exercise of the virtues. The reader must not mistake the character of this section by thinking that its counsel about meekness and humility makes its overall doctrine easy or unheroic. At its heart, DeSales's discussion turns on the three evangelical counsels of poverty, chastity, and obedience, and proposes concrete and practical measures by which the lay Christian in the world can pursue those exacting ideals. As befits a book with advice for married couples and for lay men and women preparing to be married, there are lengthy discussions of cultural practices that pose remote threats to chastity or occasions of sin, including tough-minded examinations of flirtation, dancing, and modesty of dress. The reader of the introduction to the devout life who takes these sections to heart is armed with a set of principles for the discernment of culture that mark out an arduous path, one at odds with the ways of the world, whether in the 16th or the 21st century. It is not a teaching for the faint of heart. Indeed, St. Francis de Sales' counsel about the choice of virtues is insightful, serious, and even stern, which is why it is astonishing that the virtue he chose to direct his reader's attention to first was patience. What surprises about his choice of patience is the modesty of the virtue. It is, as de Sales admits, one of the little virtues. Even though patience has a perfect work, as St. James said, in itself it is a lesser power, for it neither directly makes possible any great deeds, as do charity, justice, and prudence, nor does it remove obstacles from the path of virtue as great as those removed by the exercise of fortitude or temperance. St. James employed a humble metaphor when proposing the virtue, James 5, verses 7 to 8. I, I, I probably shouldn't have favorite passages in the Bible, but I can't help but do so. The farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient over it until it receives the early and the late rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Isn't that, isn't that great? The apostles' phrase, establish your hearts, captures what patience does for the soul. As Aquinas explained, patience removes by its root the passions that are evoked by hardships and disturb the soul. Those were roots that DeSales knew well, for he was a careful, even meticulous cultivator of souls. One of the keys to understanding his teaching about patience is found in his discussion of anxiety, which he identified as the greatest evil that can happen to a soul other than actual sin. He explained how anxiety cuts Christian life at its roots. If our heart is inwardly troubled and disturbed, it loses both the strength necessary to maintain the virtues it had acquired and the means to resist the temptations of the enemy. Close quotation. Patience is a kind of foundation for the life of virtue and devotion because it is an habitual strength of mind 
in the face of annoyance and suffering. For the Christian who has been able to escape habits of sin, one of the first steps on the path to sanctity is to build a solid disposition of patience. Opportunities to exercise the virtue, together with its close neighbor's perseverance and constancy, are rarely wanting. It is in DeSales' letters of spiritual direction that the application of this doctrine may be seen to great effect. He wrote thousands of such letters during his two decades as Bishop of Geneva. Of the many hundreds that survive, some were written to religious sisters, Jean de Chantal and others, uh, some to priests and others to lay men and women in the world. No matter his correspondent, the saint always spoke in the same voice, direct, unpretentious, and above all, warm. Again and again, he counseled his friends to find their joy in spiritual things, to look to the saints for inspiration, to strive to maintain a loving attentiveness to God, and to keep in their minds concrete images of Jesus. Kneeling in the Garden of Gethsemane, displaying his wounds, stretching out a helping hand, and above all, hanging on the cross. Throughout these letters, the virtues he most frequently turns to are the three modest manifestations of the great virtue of fortitude, perseverance, constancy, and patience. All three virtues are dispositions to carry burdens well. Perseverance and constancy are twins that regard lengthy works, with perseverance being the disposition to endure the pain of the work itself, and constancy, the determination to stick to the task in the face of temptations to abandon it in favor of other ends. Patience is a more general virtue of suffering well, but as Aquinas points out, it does have as its special task the bearing of pains caused by other persons. As he taught his correspondents how to live these virtues, DeSales's counsel was always practical and encouraging. To a correspondent frustrated because her daily duties kept interrupting her intended scheme of devotions, DeSales wrote with gentle but firm words that adjusted her perspective. God wants you to serve him as you are, and by the exercises and virtuous deeds that accord with your state in life. And in addition to persuading yourself of this truth, you must also make yourself to love your state in life and its duties, and to love them tenderly for the sake of the one who has willed it thus. To other friends, he sent similar counsel. Constancy requires, quote, that our hearts be where our treasure is, and that we should live in heaven. And while on this pilgrim journey, we must, quote, walk firmly in the way in which the providence of God has placed us, without looking either to the right or to the left. To walk in friendship with God is not the work of a day, but of a lifetime, which is why we must, quote, begin again every day, remembering that there is no better path to success in the spiritual life than always to begin again and never to think that you have done enough. Close quotation. The great obstacle in this attempt is, of course, our own weakness. Yet perseverance itself requires that we have a certain disregard for our shortcomings and maintain our confidence in the Lord. God will hold you in his hand, the saint wrote, and if he lets you stumble, 
it will be only so that you realize that you would collapse entirely if he did not hold you, and thus to make you tighten your grip on his hand. The appeal to the imagination was characteristic of de Sales' spirituality. He was much indebted to the Jesuits in that regard. And when attempting to shore up the patience of his friends, he typically asked them to bring to mind some moment in the life of Jesus. To a friend suffering from fear, he wrote, be firm in your resolutions, stay in the boat, let the storm come. While Jesus lives, you will not die. To one suffering from depression, he employed stronger medicine. Continue to embrace our crucified Lord and give him your heart and consecrate your mind to him with your affections just as they are. And to one who had complained of bitter suffering, he used the very strongest medicine. Every day, you should bring to mind the sufferings our Lord endured for our redemption and consider how good it is for you to participate in them. The image of the crucified Savior is the right medicine for our souls. When self-pity knocks at the door, we must run to the cross and look to the Lord. The vision of the stripes by which we are healed is the light that casts away the darkness of our sorrows and renews our minds for the labors of the Christian life. The troubled age of Hamlet and Montaigne was much like our own. It has now been several decades since North Americans could convince themselves that they lived in a tolerably peaceful and well-ordered society. As sociologist James Davison Hunter said over 20 years ago, our public life is defined by conflict, by the struggle between the opposing moral visions at the heart of the culture war. The trials and tribulations experienced by Christians today are not likely to lessen in our lifetime. And it is a very real threat that some will respond to this wearying struggle by giving in to pessimism and disgust. St. Francis de Sales helped his age to weather a similar storm, and he can help us as well. Were he among us today, he may well wish to remind us of his warning against the common human tendency to conceal sloth under the pretext of humility. Those who succumb to such a temptation excuse themselves from, quote, aspiring to the grace to which God's mercy calls them on the pretext of their own inadequacy. But the truly humble person will dismiss this temptation and, quote, be all the more courageous because he recognizes his own impotence and places his whole trust in God. The wise and good bishop knew that for most of us, the life of charity is made up of daily victories in which we practice the little creaturely virtues that spring from a humble trust in God's providence. What is needed to rekindle the flame of our charity, he tells us, is a courage that is a little more vigorous and resolute. Thank you for your attention. What a, what a great place to speak this is. The acoustics are great. The ambiance is first rate. Say again. Applause is long. It resounds. I believe we have a few minutes for a question. Love to have a question or two if there's time.
1588 in the complete final edition. Professor Shannon. Uh, did, uh, Montaigne certainly had uh, many partisans and supporters all in this period. Did any of them recognize uh, Desailles kind of challenge the Montaigne and try to uh, engage with it all? Or they... uh, yeah, actually, yeah. Uh, uh, the, the, the French uh, bishop uh, and famous preacher Bossuet uh, had, his, had his eye set on Montaigne. Um, and was a great partisan of de Sales. So there's, there's one example, and there are others. No, 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 any partisans of Oh, very much so, yeah. So, you know, to the pure, all things are pure. And there was an extraordinarily pious bishop who was actually a friend of Francis de Sales, whose name was Camus, uh, like, the, like the French existentialist playwright, yeah. So Bishop Camus of Belay, who somehow managed to read Montaigne's essays as a glass half full instead of a glass half empty, uh, and and was a bit confused, uh, I'm afraid. Yeah. So, but this is the thing. But Montaigne was himself a good Catholic man and known to be such, and so the initial readers of the volume uh, tended to give him the benefit of the doubt, and then over time it was able to be discerned that. Uh, that in fact the influence of the book was, was a negative one. So the, the great critic of Montaigne in the 17th century, as most of you know probably, is Pascal. He's the one who really just takes the gun to him. Yeah. Yes? You know, the thing about Montaigne is, like, like any number of, of would-be reformers or innovators about this time, 15th century through the, through the 17th, is that they're, they're, they're often good Catholicer than Christian men or women who are, are just slightly off on one point, you know? And in his case, it's a pretty big psychological point. Uh, but, uh, but, yeah, so, um, and typically what you see is someone settling in favor of an apparent good instead of an actual actual good right so certainly it is an apparent good that we organize that we sort of construct our own lives in such a way that we be kind of at an equilibrium right uh, but that's different from the peace of Christ which passes all understanding okay uh, and so that's, that's the slight miss on Montaigne's part. How does he get there? As I suggested, I mean, he's, he's up to his eyeballs in Epictetus and Seneca and so forth. And, and that's, you know, this is like having, you know, thin oatmeal. It's just not very nourishing at the end of the day. So. Yes, sir. Ah, oh boy, I should defer to Professor Lane on the visitation here because he knows so much about religious life in 17th century France. Um, yeah, I mean, it was a providential meeting between these two who would later be saints and, and a wonderful, beautiful uh, spiritual friendship uh, that's, that's really quite extraordinary. I encourage you all to read a biography um, that, that treats of their friendship. It's, it's, it's really beautiful to see. And I think that the, the key thing to say about the the visitation, there's a lot that could be said about how 
they initially intended an active order and that was not allowed by the church and so it's all it's all very complex uh, but what I think is so beautiful about it is that it's it's something that, that grows out of friendship. So it's a whole movement that grows out of friendship. And I think this is the way God often works. I mean, this is the story of Christian College, right? Is something growing out of friendship um, and living on friendship. So, so there's that. As far as his greatest accomplishment, um, I do think that his, his hidden life of shouldering the burdens uh, of the Episcopal um, uh, office is is really the you want to know why he's a saint well that that's why right because uh, to care for the souls of your people and to, to 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 be the father to the fathers of your people to care for your priests to raise up good priests and so forth the number of of, of of vocations in his diocese was just you can't even believe it right I mean as a diocese about the size of Warren County and maybe Warren and Frederick County together, right? Not a very big diocese, and 20 a year, every year, amazing. Uh, so I think that's, that's the thing to say. It's the hidden life of holiness with him. So maybe, maybe one more question. A stumper? Yeah. More, um, plenty of time for questions, huh? Okay. Right. Well, yeah. um, where would you fit in this program of prayer from part two of the introduction and into how you're Right. And maybe how, how does he use it in the letters, perhaps? Like the, does he comment on the almost rule of life that he sets up in part two mm -hmm. when he's giving these, these people advice in their, their particular situation? Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's a stumper. Um, <laughs> thank you, Professor. Appreciate that. Um, uh, I, uh, uh, here, here's, here's my stab at it. Um, uh, what, what occurs to me um, from, from working through the letters, uh, and, and maybe this is just a self-referential comment, so take it for what it's worth, uh, is, is that um, uh, the, the moral virtues are always with us, right? So it, 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 this, this pilgrimage that we're on together uh, is one in which, in which the, moral, the moral virtues are necessary to, to our pursuit of the love of God, all, all the way until our deathbed. Uh, and the spiritual, so, so he, his correspondents are testifying to aridity in prayer or other, other sorts of frustrations that relate to uh, their pursuit of God. And his response is typically framed in terms of these minor moral virtues of, of patience and perseverance and constancy. Uh, so, you know, I'm reminded of uh, St. Peter's epistle, because uh, I'm a Catholic, I can't remember which one, uh, <laughs> it, 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 in which St. Peter says, you are being built, right? You are living stones, you are being built. In other words, God's the one who's doing the work, right? We all know this, but we, this is precisely what we need to be reminded of, uh, that the work that God is doing in our souls is... is uh, uh, the kind of work that, in which work on the foundation is always going on, even if there might happen to be some work on the upper stories at the same time. Okay, so I think that's that's how I would answer that stumper. Okay, yes. Would you say that the Penticello's um, response to to Montaigne, or to the things that Montaigne was saying, as well in the 16th century, uh, was only a theological? 
was was only a theological response as opposed to Okay, good. Um, yeah, I, I, I think I, maybe maybe the maybe the, the, the first way to answer this question would be to say that the the horizon here is uh, that other other than uh, other than the Jewish people who who are there in Europe uh, here and there, um, everybody in Europe is a Christian, right? And so the problems of the day. Unlike, unlike today, when, when the spiritual nature of the problems facing us gets buried, right? It, it, during the sales lifetime, the, the, the fact that these big cultural problems are happening, it's evidence to everybody that they're involved in the spiritual life. So I wouldn't, I, I, taking your question to be um, having to do with the relationship between faith and reason and the, the moral life and the spiritual life and so forth. And I think what I would say is that um, it wasn't really possible to imagine uh, them separate at the time, or in any event, a, bi a busy bishop who's trying to give counsel to people is going to take it for granted that people are living with a certain kind of spiritual horizon um, at the time. So that's, that's my best stab at Did that help at all? I think, Not um, quite. Yeah, so, no, I got you, yeah. No, it's not a philosophical response, it, it, except that it is. Um, yeah, here's, so here's, yeah, here's the thing, right? I mean, as you, as you know from your study of the Nicopachean ethics, uh, whiz, philosophical wisdom for Aristotle is a little bit like charity for, for Aquinas, which is to say, in order to have it, you gotta have all the other virtues too, right? And this makes sense, right? If we're not prudent, then we're not gonna become philosophically wise because we're gonna play Xbox all the time, okay? If we're not temperate, we're not gonna become philosophically wise because we're gonna drink beer all the time, right? So the, the moral virtues are so many necessary foundations for the philosophical pursuit. And in fact, uh, I don't think it's out of bounds at all to say that Montaigne is cutting the philosophical life at its root uh, not only from his arguments, right, and he makes some arguments and some of them are worth contending with, but also, uh, and more essentially, by the way of life that he's proposing. Because he's, he's proposing in the essays a life that seems to be an examined life, okay? You know, Socrates, examined life, not worth the living, and so forth, right? We don't want to be cows, heads down, eating grass all the time. Uh, we want to be looking up and so forth. So Montaigne seems to be proposing a philosophical life, but he's really not, okay? Because the philosophical life is a life in which we're pursuing prior and prior principles and further and further ends with, with ardor, okay? And Montaigne's skepticism is in fact a closure to the pursuit of prior and prior principles and further and further ends. Um, so, and with that, uh, we'll call to a close. Thank you so much for your attention. Great to be here.